This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. And welcome to the City of God podcast, where we are weekly talking about today's biggest cultural issues through the lens of God's infallible word. My name is Rob Pacienza, and as always, joined by my co-host, John Rabe. John, great to see you. Great to see you, Rob. Thank you. As always, it's uh, an opportunity to get together for another outstanding program today. This is a really good one, and I'm glad that that everyone is tuned in for it, uh, because we on this program have talked quite a bit about the phenomenon of woke Christianity and wokeness in general. And, you know, these these can start to seem like sort of hobby horses, like, oh, come on, what's with all the... Well, there, there's a reason for it. And, and that reason is uh, we live in a culture in which objective truth has been under attack for many decades now, where it has gotten to the point where uh, the, the notion of objective truth and objective facts has pretty much disappeared. And it's been replaced with this very subjective viewpoint. And so what's happened is that even in the church, young people uh, or people who are not that young, uh, you know, it goes all the way through to to baby boomers now, but have in one way or another sort of accepted the premises of woke ideology just because that's the cultural air that we breathe. And so it filters into the churches and we need to address that and and always be reforming by the word of God. Absolutely. Uh, One of my heroes, Gresham Machen, uh, when he started attacking liberal Christianity 100 years ago. They called him a radical. Yeah. Uh, they thought he was being an extremist. Uh, and we certainly have seen what liberal Christianity did a hundred years ago, gave rise to uh, main, uh, mainline Protestantism. Yep. And now you have historically uh, uh, conservative denominations and churches that have completely left the reservation instead of flying Christian flags they're flying pride flags and Black Lives Matters flags. So you can just see in, in one generation what happens when uh, we take the eye off the ball, we stop calling out uh, uh, heresy and liberal Christianity and now progressive Christianity for what it is. And that's why I'm grateful for my guest today, our guest today, Lucas Miles, who's a pastor who is calling out uh, woke Christianity, who is calling out the evangelical left and just wrote a new book called Woke Jesus, the False Messiah Destroyed. Christianity. And uh, in addition to being a pastor and author, he is the founder of the American Pastor Project, uh, which is really uh, hoping to encourage like-minded pastors and ministry leaders all across the nation to come together to form a coalition and alliance uh, where we can really help encourage one another to to be bold, to proclaim truth from the pulpit, uh, and to not water down the message of the gospel in this historic moment in the church. Yeah, and in the course of the interview here with Lucas Miles. We'll give you the information on how you can get connected with that or help your pastor get connected with that. But Lucas Miles is a guy who, frankly, I was not aware of, say, three years ago. And he came onto my radar in the past couple of years and has really, I think, done some outstanding work. People are going to enjoy this interview because he's a thoughtful guy. He's a great communicator. He's passionate about this stuff and has really dove deeply into the uh, into the the woke ideology and how it's affecting the church and a, a voice that maybe uh, some tuning into the podcast today have not necessarily heard from yet. You're, I think you're really going to enjoy him and find some great insight. Yeah, from so him. we'll talk about his book, Woke Jesus, the American Pastor Project. We'll talk about how a lack of a biblical worldview uh, has opened the door in the North American church for the rise of progressive Christianity. Uh, we'll also talk about how gender and sexual issues are often the root cause 
of deconstructionism and how this is just uh, taking a record amount of youth, uh, taking them, uh, captivating their minds and their hearts and drawing them away from the historic faith of Christianity. But also, what's the antidote? What, right. what is the answer? So he does give us a message of hope and how we can uh, give a call to action that is clear and compelling to the North American church. So without further ado, here is our interview with Pastor Lucas Miles. Today, we're joined by Lucas Miles. Pastor, thank you so much for joining us on the City of God podcast. It's an honor. I'm glad to be here. So uh, your latest book is one of uh, my favorite reads uh, the last few months. I think it's just so important uh, what you're talking about, what you're exposing. And the book is entitled Woke Jesus, the False Messiah Destroying Christianity. Tell our audience a little bit about that book and what drove you to write it. Yeah, you know, look, I, I've seen this this uh, really frightening trend of more and more churches that are embracing woke ideology, they're embracing Marxism, they're embracing critical race theory, liberation theology, uh, and churches that once seemed relatively pretty solid doctrinally are doing this. And I really felt like there needed to be a definitive resource that started you know, from the beginning of how did progressive ideology really find its way into the church? How did it get here? And, and you know, what are the modern implications? And ultimately, what do we do about it? Uh, as you know, I start the book with uh, this this quote from Irenaeus, who, who wrote uh, the book Against Heresies in the second century, uh, around 180 AD. And uh, he saw an issue in the church that the first century church struggled to refute Gnosticism not because they weren't aware of it, not because um, they didn't know that it was wrong at some level, but because they didn't understand it well enough to be able to argue against it. And I've seen that same trend happen in the church today, that people, the average Christian could not explain communism, they could not explain critical race theory, they could not, you know, they probably don't even know what liberation theology is, especially not even black liberation theology. And I really wanted to be able to detail these things out in a way that that a Christian, whether a lay person or a, a, a minister of some sort, had the um, had 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 the 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 knowledge necessary to be able to build biblical arguments against these things and to really help lead themselves, their families, and their congregations more into what I would call historic Christianity, Orthodox Christianity. Um, you know, as they as they continue their relationship in Christ, and they're not led into these deceptions. This has been such a fast moving phenomenon uh, that you know I think most people listening to us probably had not even heard the term woke before two or three years ago. Probably not until after the summer of George Floyd uh, is when the term gained currency. You've known about it a little bit longer than that, but whenever you embark upon a project of necessarily criticizing what's happening in the church, necessarily criticizing leaders. Uh, there's immediately a chorus of people saying, you're dividing the body of Christ. You are, uh, you know, why, why do you have to be so negative? Why do you have to be so critical? Um, you certainly have dealt with that as you've gone here. I'm sure a lot of opposition from people saying, come on, Pastor Lucas, can't we all just get along here? Yeah. Look, I, I think that uh, I think you're right that this has seemed to move very, very quickly. Um, it, it's not that it wasn't there before, but it didn't have the opportunity to gain the trajectory and the momentum that it has through the events that you're describing, through the death of George Floyd, through COVID. Um, and and this is something you know when we talk about woke, it's not just race, 
Uh, it's also it's also elements of sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's also um, the social component of sort of you know class uh, class warfare sort of ideas. You know this this bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. And then there's this new component that's very unique to the time that we live in, um, which is essentially this idea of public health that also plays a role in wokeism. And in fact, the the issue of of um, you know the, the death of George Floyd, I'll say it that way, and the 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 sort of the perfect storm of COVID happening almost simultaneously, it set a framework and a stage for that that I think the average pastor in America was not prepared for. And they weren't ready. They didn't. They hadn't thought these things through in advance. And so all of a sudden, there's these two, you know, crises that are facing their their the nation and their churches. And they were trying to figure out how do we respond. And unfortunately, they listened to a lot of kind of these progressive Christian talking heads, the guys that would say, "Well, Jesus would get the you know fifth booster or whatever." <laughs> and and they they ended up, um, I think, just having this knee jerk reaction with good intention. You know, some of these guys who, you know, they wanted to prevent their congregation from being torn apart by politics and torn apart over issues of race and torn torn apart over issues of, of you know, medical freedom. And so they kind of took this, this, like, this middle ground road, this sort of lukewarm position, and, and it really allowed this stuff to flourish. Uh, I'll, I'll say this, I'll hand it back to you guys, but, you know, if you look at and I won't name names on this. I do in the book. If you guys bring them up, we'll, I'll talk about them. But <laughs> but uh, I, I'll try not to, you know, uh, go on a on a rant on that. But if you look at um, some of the most significant pastors in this nation, the most well known names, and you go to their Instagram page, the vast majority of them have a black square on Instagram in support of Black Lives Matter. Um, around the time of the death of George Floyd. And that was not just something for George Floyd. That was that was a campaign of Black Lives Matter. And, and you know, which I understand if pastors didn't know what that was and they were deceived and they just thought maybe I want to show solidarity with, you know, with part of my congregation that, that would identify in this way. Um, but after we found out that BLM was anti-family, anti-God, that they were using race in order to you know promote trans rights that they were embezzling money that they were you know all the stuff that's happened there i'm waiting for one of these guys to come out and say uh hey guys i thought i was doing the right thing mm-hmm. i got behind this i showed support for it i just want to repent of that i want to say that this was the wrong move and i want to make sure i don't lead anybody astray by what perceives to be continued support by this remaining on my page and I've, I've not, people, I've not even seen people quietly get rid of this. I just checked the other day on like ten major pastors; they all still have this up there. So this is this is something that's no longer just the 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 high churches, the Episcopals, and the the you know um, United Church of Christ or something like that. That is that is you know has a LGBT you know female pastor or something in place. This is mainstream denominational churches that have fallen into this. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, John and I represent two of the largest conservative evangelical denominations. I'm a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America. John's an elder in the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, both of those denominations have grappled with wokeism and Black Lives Matters and same-sex attraction being something that's embraced and permissible by the Bible. So I I absolutely resonate when you say this is no longer your mainline denominations uh, wrestling with these issues. Pastor, you mentioned in your previous answer, progressive Christianity and progressive pastors. 
We all know that wokeism is just another fatal flaw, another fatal fruit of the movement of progressive Christianity, all in the name of relevance and cultural accommodation. We talk about on this podcast, wokeism and progressive Christianity a lot, and how it's infiltrating the North American church and even the evangelical church. There's not a lot of pastors talking about it, though. Why is that? Why are pastors so afraid to talk about progressive Christianity and its danger and how it is destroying uh, the, 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 the faith of millions of people and leading people astray? Yeah, so here's, you know, here's the interesting thing. I've, I've, probably, um, I've probably never verbalized this like this before. So you guys are done a lot of interviews the last two years, but you're getting some new kind of process through this with that question, because I think it's very intriguing. And, and here's, here's sort of what has happened. You have a, um, a lot of pastors, a, a large conglomerate of pastors in the United States, that they are now associate pastors and executive pastors and senior pastors. Before that, though, they started in youth ministry and they worked their way up. They didn't have a lot of formal theological training. They didn't even have a lot of biblical training behind them. Um, these are guys that, you know, they were impacted as younger, you know, adults in the church or, or as students in the church. They kind of worked their way through. And they've never really put in the time to um, uh, to get a good, you know, a strong biblical worldview. You know, I, I, I love, I, I'm an Augustine nut. And so I love the, the title of your, your podcast here with just sort of that throwback reference. But we have a lot of pastors that wouldn't even know that the city of God was like, a, you know, a book by Augustine, like, that, that's, that, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that this is that this is, you know, uh, um, you know, part of that, uh, a part of Christian history in that way. And so those pastors, I think, when the social justice movement came, sort of like a Trojan horse, they kind of just jumped on board. It was the hip thing. It was hook, line, and sinker. They saw some of the mega churches doing it. They saw some of the cool kind of, you know, non-traditional churches, you know, really embracing this. Uh, it, it sounded like hands and feet stuff of Jesus. And so, and, and elements of it were, um, but there was sort of this agenda behind it that it was ushering in, um, you know, this liberation theology, this this uh, uh, sort of, you know, rich versus poor, black versus white sort of framework. I mean, in many ways, liberation theology is the Christianized version of critical race theory, or maybe we say it this way, critical race theory is the secular version of liberation theology mm. is probably more appropriate when you look at the, the the time in which this came out, because liberation theology really predates, uh, you know, in many ways, um, you know, modern forms of critical race theory. The other group of pastors in this nation are hyper-academics. These are guys that they've studied theology, they've gone through, they've done the work, but here's the problem. Our Bible colleges have been hijacked for a while. And long before George Floyd. So these guys were getting progressive, you know, um, professors that were teaching them about the gospel of Q and deconstructing the New Testament and, you know, all these sort of things in order to really break down their faith. My wife's a German speaker. And, you know, when we when we were in uh, we were in Germany for you know short time, just, you know, multiple trips and these things uh, uh, early on in my ministry. And I remember 20 years ago hearing from pastors over there that the seminaries in Germany at the time, in Munich specifically, and in Hamburg and, and Berlin, were boasting that by the time you finish seminary, you're going to be an atheist. 
And I thought, oh, they, these guys are so, you know, these guys are so messed up and this, you know, so thankful I live here in America. Well, we're there now. We have seminaries where if you go to those and you study under certain professors, you will leave there and you will deconstruct your faith. If you don't leave an atheist, you'll leave there at least completely disconnected from the church, um, uh, you know, and really cynical and, and uh, um, you know, fully, you know, just, you know, to, to use that word, deconstructed in every aspect of your faith. And so, you know, these are, these are, these make up a large percentage of the pastors in America, those two groups. So between the guys that don't have a theological background to recognize why this is wrong, and the guys that were trained with a progressive theological background, there's only a small sector in the middle that had a great historical, uh, uh, you know, historically Christian education. They were taught, you know, um, uh, you know, about the tenets of the faith. They understand the value of church history and creeds and councils. They they believe in the New Testament that it's that it is, you know, or they believe in the Bible as a whole that it's the inerrant Word of God, that it's God breathed, that it's useful for correcting, teaching, rebuking, and training unto righteousness. We there's there's just a very small percentage of guys that are left that hold to that. So we are in a predicament right now. I don't want to sugarcoat it. I'm still an optimist, but but this is this is how we got to where we are. It was the perfect, um, you know, the, this this sort of uh, the 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 culture and all this stuff coming together provided the perfect substrate for progressive ideology to plant you know these uh these these weeds of of bitterness and and you know cynicism and these things that we've seen grow up so in what ways are you seeing this woke ideology actually infiltrating churches you know i think there are probably some people watching listening to us who say well okay i understand that that's something that's happening out there but not in my corner not in not in my church um and yet we look at somebody like uh andy stanley the the son yeah. of the late charles stanley who himself was a stalwart of the Southern Baptist Convention, and um, Andy's trajectory has been there to see for the past decade or so, if you've been looking carefully, but in the last year or so, has really uh, placed himself on the wrong side of this divide with the way that uh, he speaks about LGBTQ issues and, and so forth. Um, and, and so there's one specific example, but, but how are we yeah. actually seeing this infiltrating actual churches that where people may find themselves in one and not even know that it's happening. Uh, I'd love to unpack that a little bit. You know, let me let me start with with Stanley, because I think this is an important thing that, that a lot of people are seeing right now. You're right. Stanley's been on a trajectory for a while, but I think there was one and this is just my own personal opinion here. But I think there was one thing that was holding him back. And that was his dad was still alive. Mm. And when his dad passed, we have seen acceleration in the last few months he has gone further faster into progressive ideology in the last couple months since his dad has passed uh, than he did in the last, you know, five years. And, and that's a sad fact. Um, but, but I think that that's the reality of the situation is that, that he held this back. I mean, I, I, I know couples where, you know, they stay married until their parents, you know, until one of their parents get a divorce and then they divorce, you know, after 30 years of marriage, mm -hmm. just because they didn't want their mom or dad to see him in that situation. Um, I, I think that, you know, when we look at the church as a whole, how do we find this? We find this, first of all, in, in what the church is speaking about and what they're not willing to speak about, I think is equally as telling. Um, you know, if, if your church did not at least acknowledge the overturning of Roe v. Wade, there's an issue. You know, that that's a major thing. Um, you know, we, we had a standing ovation in our church. I happened to be in D.C. I, I felt like Forrest Gump. I just happened to be out there the night that the leak broke, mm. having dinner from the Supreme Court, like, you know, three blocks down 
with a, a journalist and a national uh, kind of uh, PR strategist that I work with. And, and we jumped in a, we jumped in a car and we zipped up there and, and, you know, we were probably the first hundred people to get the steps. Um, and, you know, if your church isn't willing to talk about uh, the historic moment that that was, if they weren't willing to address that, that's a concern. Um, what does your church teach about, uh, about, you know, really salvation? Because ultimately critical race theory is another gospel. Uh, we could line up, we could replace, you know, Paul's words in Galatian. I don't want to be, um, you know, I, I, I want to be careful with how I present this here, but I think that, you know, in, in just looking at application from the text to today, um, there are other gospels that have been preached throughout history, and you could line them up in Galatians when Paul's talking about, if anybody comes to you and preaches another gospel than what I've preached to you, how is critical race theory another gospel? It's another gospel because first and foremost, it's based upon Marxism. It's based upon a godless framework. It's based upon this oppressor versus oppressed. Uh, if you subscribe to critical race theory, how do you get saved? Well, you get saved by what they would say is doing the work. It's actually a legalistic framework from the beginning. This is mm -hmm. different than salvation by grace. And it doesn't mean you can replace it with Judaizers. You can replace it with, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, some other, you know, some other um, ideology that that is in there, some, you know, past heresy. And, and they're all the same. This is salvation by works. And in fact, how do we get to be accepted if you are not from, uh, if you're not somebody who previously adheres to critical race theory, how do you become accepted by that community? They would tell you to do the work. How long do I need to do the work? Well, just keep doing the work. When you get to the point to where you stop asking that question, that's when you've known you've done it enough. You know, I mean, it's just these very vague answers, you know, um, and it's it's a weird form of like Gnostic legalism uh, is really what it is that it that has been produced here. Um, uh, you know, if, if this whole the whole sexuality explosion that we've seen, all these divergent views, um, obviously, the, you know, Scripture is very clear. It's it's marriage is man and woman. Um, sexuality is male and female. Uh, gender is male and female. There's not a difference between gender and sex as far as identity. Um, you know, this this is all modern constructs used to divide people and to create division and really to rebel against God. You can't subscribe to these things and hold to a New Testament framework or an Old Testament framework or a biblical framework, period. This is antithetical to Christianity. And so anybody that starts promoting a gospel that teaches um, that, you know, and this is this is the interesting thing, is that progressive Christianity, it's actually like in some ways, and I'll get in the, you know, maybe the weeds of theology here for a second, it's almost a form of Pelagianism. It's It's got this sort of like, there's there's no there's no depravity, you know. Pelagius is sort of like you know you 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 are um, you're righteous until you sin, you know. So if you could maintain your righteousness, then you're good. And and sort of like this is this hyper form where now it is there's no such thing as unrighteousness. Everything is holy, you know. Um, the the a marriage between two men is holy. That can't be ungodly. It can't be unrighteous because God is in the center of all things that are holy. And since this is something that is holy, he's in the center of it. Mm -hmm. And it uses this kind of this circular reasoning to get there. And it was really, you know, I think it led a lot of people astray. And because we have such a high level of biblical illiteracy, um, we are seeing people deceived by this, by the droves. And, and you know, it's it's tearing apart churches and denominations.
Another tragedy uh, inside the church and outside the church uh, concerning the woke movement and uh, churches uh, embracing cultural Marxism has been uh, the assault on God's design for gender and sexuality. And you hear a lot of people say there's so many things, uh, Pastor Rob and and, uh, Pastor Lucas, that we can be fighting for and fighting against. Um, Why is fighting for God's design concerning gender and sexuality so important, both for the church, for the next generation, and for society at large? Great question. And I think that, you know, look, it's important that, and and I don't, if I could take out billboards across the country to try to explain myself, I would probably do that, right? But like, there are people that, that see somebody like me, they see a show like yours or something, and they make these judgments. And they assume that, you know, because you're trying to correct people on this issue, that you must hate everybody who's part of the LGBT community or something like that. The reality is I love people. Um, And I think that how we talk about this stuff at a 30,000 foot view level, how we are on a show like this, that is different than how I'm dealing with somebody when they are in the trenches of the situation. If I'm in if I'm in Best Buy and there's somebody who's trans at the register, you know, I'm not sitting there and, and, you know, pulling out scripture and and hitting them with it. You know, I'm trying to build a relationship. I'm trying to speak to them, trying to show them dignity and love and respect for for them being a person. They are created in the image of God, and this is one of the deceptions, but you become a child of God when you are adopted in Christ. And so, you know, we can celebrate them as being created in God's image, but we cannot include them or, or assume them into the family of God simply because they are created because adoption happens through a conscious choice, you know, in that way. And, and so when it comes to sexuality, here's, here's, I think the real crux of it is that, that issues of when it's, and it's really anything that has to do with identity, which is so important today in this world, any sin of identity is problematic. And I would say it's not that it's a worse sin than other sins, although I do think it has greater effects um, but you know, the Bible says if you've if you, you know, uh basically that if you've committed one sin, you're guilty. If you've broken the law at any one point, right? You're in James, it says you're guilty of breaking all of it. You know, so it's it's that we are all lawbreakers apart from Christ, of not just one law that we broke personally, but every single law. But when you would accept the gender, you know, confusion, the sexual, you know, divergent views, what you're really stating is I was created this way. And what this does is this not just contra, it's not just rebellion against God's system. It's actually a an acknowledgement or a, a a proud assertion that I do not have depravity in me in this area. And it is that this is righteous. And so basically what you're saying is I don't need a savior. I think this is one reason why progressive Christianity doesn't really talk about the salvific um, aspects to the cross very often. They focus on the incarnation. They focus on the life of Jesus, the social gospel side of the of, of, of the message, and they, they ignore the spiritual side. They don't talk about heaven and hell and these things. Why? Because they don't perceive that they need a savior because they perceive themselves to be righteous from the beginning. You don't have an alcoholic that typically walks into church, you know, drunk and says, I, this is my. This is a righteous way for me to live. I know that I'm living the right way. They might say that in a drunken stupor, but you get them sober, and they're going to say, "Look, I'm messing my life up. I know I'm messing my life up. This is wrong." Uh, you, somebody that's you know having an affair, very unless they're in total rebellion and they've seared their conscience, they know that they screwed up. 
but you take somebody in this sexual confusion and they will they will stand you know boldly declaring that no this is how i was made it's right for me to live this way this is my identity this is my nature it is a rejection of original sin depravity whatever you want to call that from your theological background and essentially what that puts you in is it puts you in a position where if you aren't claiming that you need a savior, then how can you receive God's grace? It becomes virtually impossible. We have a relatively short amount of time with you remaining, Lucas, but one of the things I think you're helping to show here is how tied together all these things are. I think often people think, well, the gospel is here at the center, and then you guys are talking about these 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 side issues, and they're really not. It's all it's a, once you start pulling on the threads, it all unravels. Uh, one of the things that comes up in this is that, and and we all deal with children, parents of children in our congregations who are very concerned about all of this. And you have a system now that is essentially saying your children are not your own. Your children are ours to indoctrinate in these things. Um, and parents want to know how to protect themselves uh, and protect their children. But you really do have a very fundamental question uh, at the center of all this, which is, to whom do my kids belong? Uh, what yeah. is the design for the family? Who has God given the primary charge to? Uh, and that's a major cleavage in our, our culture wars today, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll steal some theological language from my Reformed brothers and sisters, and we have this term that we call sphere sovereignty. Yes, uh, Kuiper was obviously one of the ones that, uh, that, that really pioneered this. Um, but this is a this is a concept that we could go back, you know, um, all the way to the New Testament to show. I think this is a major part of what Paul is is um, you know presenting uh, in Romans 13 in talking about the uh, the role of government, the role of the leader. And so what we see is that God created this world with order. I mean, that's obvious. It's everywhere we look. Uh, it's not a world of chaos. It's a world of order. We, as fallen beings, have a tendency to create some chaos in this world, but the world itself is very systematized and, and you know, ordered through the cells in our body, through the universe, through the interactions of all of these things. Uh, we see in that order, the Bible says that the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. So ultimately, God is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is the sovereign one who oversees all of his creation. But there are certain delegated authorities that he's given. We see that in Genesis of, of the dominion given to Adam and Eve. This is not, you know, a an unrestricted dominion. This is not a dominion without any sort of, you know, parameters around it. But there are aspects of dominion that he's given to man. He then also gives certain authority to kings and rulers. We see this in the Old Testament established. We see this, you know, referenced again in the New Testament in places like Romans 13, where that kings have a role. It's actually, it's actually, um, you know, the it, the implication of Romans 13 is not that God, it's not that every king is a divinely established authority. There are people who are tyrannical leaders who consider themselves kings that have hijacked their nation. That doesn't mean that God put them there. The Bible says there's a way to prosper uh, that's not of God. Um, but but every divinely, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, placed ruler and authority is there by God. And how do we discern them? We discern them in Romans 13, that they do good to those who do good, and they bear the sword for those who do evil. So the king, the ruler, has an authority, a sphere of sovereignty from God over the nation. The, we also see in Scripture that the the um, the elder and the pastor, they have a sphere of sovereignty over the church. This is why nobody can come in and tell you not to sing you know, uh, on Sunday morning because it's, you know, for because of public health issues. That's the job of the pastor and the elders to decide that. 
um, or whether or not your church should stay open or not. That's not that the government was usurping religious yes. freedom and specifically sphere sovereignty in order to do that. In the family, going back to your question, is God has given authority, we could say first and foremost, to the father as the head of the household and, and you know, delegated authority both to the mother and the father in the house um, to oversee the affairs of the home. Uh, and so the government has, you know, the king, the ruler might have authority over the nation. Um, but when it comes to the house, this is why that this is why, you know, there are things in our Constitution that prevent just the government coming into your house without a warrant that prevent, you know, uh, you know, soldiers just coming to stay in your house and, you know, taking control of it in these things. This was all addressed in our constitutional framework because it's based upon a Judeo-Christian idea. And that is this idea of sphere sovereignty. And so uh, and, and, you know, to take that even further, we then have individual sphere sovereignty over our personal bodies. This is why somebody should never be able to mandate you to take a shot or, you know, to get vaccinated or to do some other medical medical procedure that you're not comfortable with, because why? It might violate your faith. And for it to violate your faith, according to 1 Corinthians, it's not only causing you to sin, it's also causing the person who's forcing it upon you to sin as well. And so, you know, we can develop a theology for all of these things, and the answers are in the book. The answers are in Scripture fully to be able to protect the family, protect the home, protect our nation from this tyrannical push. But we have to be awake enough and biblically literate enough to actually be able to navigate this to really know how we can stand up and do so with confidence, knowing that we have you know, a, a biblical right on our side to be able to do so. Pastor, as we wrap up this conversation, one of the things I appreciate about you is you don't only complain and talk and, and point out the problems in culture. We have a lot of thought leaders that are, they love to point out what's wrong, but you're actually giving the church practical solutions. And one of the practical solutions is a call to action for pastors in America. And you've, you've launched an initiative uh, for pastors. Tell our audience a little bit about that initiative yeah. and how their pastor can get involved. I appreciate it. So the, the website is AmericanPastorProject.org, AmericanPastorProject.org. And basically, this is a platform where pastors can go. We define pastor very broadly. Um, uh, anybody, you know, you could be a Christian music artist, a traveling worship leader. I'm not saying that from a doctrinal standpoint, but for purposes of this statement, we have a very broad definition of who is uh, who can is uh, eligible to sign it. And the reason we do that is we want anybody that is touching Christian messaging at all, could be a Christian publisher, uh, Christian podcast host. We want any of these people to make a commitment for to stand with historic Christian doctrine. Really, it's sort of a modernization of the Nicene Creed or Apostles' Creed or something like that. And, and that also to uh, to take a stand against wokeism, that they are committing that they will not use their pulpit or platform uh, to promote wokeism, globalism, um, you know, any sort of divergent view about sexuality or marriage, that they, they will, you know, stand for the sanctity of life. Uh, they won't, you know, promote, you know, critical climate theory, all these sorts of things. And so we are asking pastors, and we have already over 500 pastors that have signed this statement, uh, that, and we do monthly conference calls, we bring in major thought leaders to share from all different backgrounds, and we have chosen as a group of pastors to set aside for the purposes of this fight against wokeism, which is really Marxism in our generation, uh, for the purposes of fighting against that, to set aside secondary differences in our relationships with each other, to hold um, unity over primary doctrine uh, that is laid out in this project, and to really commit to this. And we are seeing quite a movement start. We have a lot of organizations. The Freedom Center at Liberty University has just recently gotten on board. I've been talking with um, uh, some of the team over at Turning Point Faith about this as well. We've got a lot of different groups that are getting excited about this. 
And we really believe that that there are thousands of pastors in this nation that have not bowed the knee to Baal, so to speak, on these issues. And we believe by unifying them together across this project, we're going to be stronger together. We can utilize our voice. We can, you know, be able to, you know, disseminate information and training and resources for these pastors. And we have a whole group of resources that are available to you once you sign, uh, you know, as part of this project. So, and I would say this, and, and if your pastor has not signed this, send them on the website. If you want to know if your pastor's woke, see how they respond to this. And if they re- if they refuse to sign or they give you a bunch of excuses why they can't sign it, chances are you might have a woke pastor. Not all the time, but there's a good chance. I love that. And I love that call to action, AmericanPastorProject.org. Also make sure you purchase Woke Jesus by Pastor Lucas Miles. So appreciate what you're doing uh, right now. Appreciate your boldness and your courage and uh, privilege to consider you a partner in this uh, battle for the minds and the hearts of the next generation. Thank you so much for joining us today. My honor, guys. Thank you. And thank you once again for joining us for this episode of the City of God podcast and our interview with Pastor Lucas Miles. If you enjoyed this interview, this episode, uh, we pray that you would pass this along to family and friends as we together discover how we navigate this cultural moment through the lens of God's infallible word. We pray that you join us next time for the City of God podcast. And until then, may God richly bless you. The City of God podcast is produced by Coral Ridge Ministries and made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. Visit us at cityofgodpodcast.com to access all of our previous episodes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. A full video version of this podcast is available on YouTube. This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture.